You're listening to Tech Tank, a bi-weekly podcast from the Brookings Institution, exploring the most consequential technology issues of our time. From racial bias and algorithms to the future of work, Tech Tank takes big ideas and makes them accessible. Thanks for joining our Brookings Tech Tank podcast. I'm Daryl West, Vice President of Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution and co-author with Brookings President John Allen of a book about AI entitled Turning Point, Policymaking in the Era of Artificial Intelligence. 25 years ago, the internet launched full of hope and optimism. The idea was that digital technologies would empower individuals and allow them to communicate with one another, build businesses, and enable online services in a variety of different areas. In many respects, this mission has been remarkably successful. The internet has democratized the information ecosystem and generated many different applications. But at the same time, there are concerns about ways that social media platforms enable violent speech, extremism, and human abuses. Policymakers and regulators are grappling with how to encourage innovation on the one hand, while also discouraging activities that clearly are harmful. To discuss these important questions, we are pleased to be joined by two distinguished experts. Ben Wittes is a senior fellow in governance studies at Brookings and the editor-in-chief of Lawfare. Quinta Urasik is a fellow in governance studies and a senior editor in Lawfare. Each of them has written about content moderation on social media sites, and Quinta has just put out a new Brookings piece entitled The Politics of Section 230 Reform, Learning from FOSTA's Mistakes. So Ben and Quinta, welcome to our Brookings Tech Tank podcast. Thanks for having us. Good to be here. So Quinta, I want to start with you. Your new Brookings report starts by highlighting the online abuses that we are seeing today, and this includes things like the advocacy of violence, vaccine misinformation, and harms to women and young children. And based on these harms, some say it is time to review Section 230 of the 1996 Communications Decency Act, which exempted internet platforms from being held liable for what users say on their sites. And you note that in the current Congress, there actually are more than 25 different bills that have been introduced seeking either to amend or outright repeal Section 230. So how serious are the problems in this area, and should we remove the legal liability exemption currently held by social media platforms? The problems are serious, but part of what I'm arguing in the paper is that that doesn't necessarily translate to a need to reform 230. So as you said, Section 230 is a statute that provides online platforms with, uh, shields them from civil, civil liability for content that's posted by their users. So, you know, if I post something defamatory about you on Twitter, you can sue me, but not Twitter. And 230 spent a long time as sort of a, it was often called, you know, the Magna Carta of the internet. Um, it was very well known among technologists, lawyers, people who worked on the internet, but less well known among the general population. In recent years, it's really become sort of rocketed to prominence and frankly become kind of a punching bag. Um, and because of that, people, including policymakers, I think, often point to 230 when they're trying to make a more general point about something not being right on the internet, that there's something that needs to be fixed, even if the specific tweaks that they want might not necessarily be helped 
by changing 230. So for example, if you say, well, I don't like that there is hate speech online, for example, tweaking 230, removing that liability shield wouldn't necessarily help with that. Um, First off, because it could arguably push platforms to moderate more because they could be liable if there were, you know, violent speech, hate speech um, on on their platforms. And so they would want to remove that actually more aggressively. Um, But also, sorry, I just got tangled up. Let me start that again. Apologies. It's (laughs) I haven't had enough coffee today. So, for example, people will often say, all right, you know, I I don't want violent speech online. Um, And we'll say we should remove 230 to make sure that platforms get rid of that content. But 230 allows platforms to moderate. There is a a provision of the statute that explicitly says that platforms are shielded from liability if they choose to moderate. It's part of what allows them to have a free hand and decide that they can bring things, take things off if they don't want them to be on their platforms. And you, of course, you'd also run into the problem of the First Amendment, uh, which is, of course, the, the, the underlying issue that means that it would be extremely difficult for the government to force platforms to take down hateful speech. Um, so I think that 230 has become this kind of hand wave, almost a kind of a signal that the speaker wants to change something about the internet, often without an actual connection to thinking too much about what a change to 230 would actually do. So Ben, I know you also have thought a lot and written about this topic. What are your views on ways to restrict harmful online activities? So I think the general problem with Section 230, uh, if to zoom way out, is that it immunizes all third party. It immunizes the platform for all third party contributed content, even that which we would have a reasonable expectation that the platform would in fact restrict. And so there are uh, for example, certain types of, of, of harassments, uh, of individuals, uh, certain types of, uh, 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 organization for illegal activity content, um, uh, often by terrorist groups, uh, where, you know, the platforms just have a kind of lackadaisical attitude or have sometimes had a lackadaisical attitude to restricting because um, they're actually not incentivized to by the uh, by the regime. And so I, I guess the 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 first question that I think we should ask when we think about 230 reform is what what are the categories of activity that are improper that we actually want platforms as opposed to, you know, to incentivize platforms to deal with in some systemic way. Now, in each of those cases, uh, and Quinta's paper is a very good illustration of this with respect to one category, in each of these cases, there are uh, a million unintended consequences of reducing or eliminating the 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 immunity that the 
um, platforms currently have. That said, I do think that they are overprotected in the current environment. And I think we should be looking for ways to incentivize them uh, and the tort system, the, the, the liability system is first and foremost a means of incentivizing, you know, entities to reduce harms, right? Reduce risk. And I do think we should be thinking about ways in general to incentivize platforms to reduce risk. So, uh, Quinta, Ben, I just noted the unintended consequences of legislation. And in your paper, you cite the example of the 2018 Congressional Legislation Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act, which carved out an exception from the legal liability shield in cases where sites, quote, knowingly assist, support, or facilitate violations of sex trafficking laws. So that bill created the possibility of lawsuits against Internet sites uh, thought to be in violation of federal statutes. Has that law achieved its intended objectives? Have there been unintended, have there been unanticipated consequences of that legislation? There have definitely been unanticipated consequences, and I would also argue that it hasn't achieved its objectives either. So as you mentioned, the, the law is called the... Um, uh, allow states to fight, uh, excuse me, allow states and victims to fight online sex trafficking act. I'm going to refer to it as FOSTA because that's, that's quite a mouthful. Um, and the statute did a number of different things. Uh, it created a new crime of owning, managing, or operating an online platform with the intent to promote or facilitate prostitution. It also expanded existing federal sex trafficking law to criminalize knowingly assisting, supporting, or facilitating sex trafficking. Um, and among other things, it created a new exception to Section 230 for federal civil claims under that expanded definition of sex trafficking. Um, it also allowed state criminal prosecutions for behavior that would violate federal sex trafficking law and that new criminal statute, um, owning, managing, or operating a platform. Um, that's important because uh, I think we we should note that Section 230, like I mentioned, shielded platforms from federal civil liability as well as state criminal and civil liability. It did not shield platforms from federal criminal liability. So this expansion to uh, this loophole in 230 is essentially saying, okay, now you can also have all of these different federal suits and you can also have um, state claims, state criminal prosecutions as well. In terms of FOSTA's effects, the main effect that it has had is shutting down an enormous amount of speech that was not sex trafficking by any definition. Um, and this is something that uh, people engaged in the sex trade, sex workers and advocates, along with internet freedom advocates, had warned about very early on. That essentially, if you remove that liability shield of Section 230, platforms have an incentive to be overly cautious because they don't want to risk the lawsuits that that could result or the criminal prosecutions that could result. And that's particularly a concern for, you know, smaller platforms. A company like uh, Facebook or Meta has a big budget and they can sort of deal with uh, that litigation. A smaller platform just 
doesn't want to have to handle it. So almost as soon as FOSTA passed and was signed into law, websites started closing down forums. Uh, Craigslist closed its personals forum. Um, a number of websites that were used by sex workers to advertise closed. Uh, a number of websites that were used just by sex workers to communicate with one another um, and share information to keep themselves safe because the sex trade can be very dangerous work. Those closed as well. And the effect of that we've seen in in the years since has really been that it pushed sex workers onto the street um, rather than allowing them to advertise online, um, which is increasingly dangerous. You can't vet your clients, so you could potentially um, work with someone who could hurt you uh, physically. There are also dangers in terms of people becoming more economically unstable and perhaps putting themselves in more dangerous situations to get work. Um, and there have been studies by both academics and uh, sex work advocacy collectives that have shown these increased dangers. Well, so maybe, you know, supporters of FOSTA might say, that that is acceptable collateral damage, essentially. I don't think that, but perhaps they might argue that, you know, if if that that, that is what we really need to do in order to clamp down on illegal, non-consensual sex trafficking. But the thing is that there is no evidence that that is the case. So the Government uh, Accountability Office released a report um, required by the actual statute in the summer of 2021 that found that there are only two cases in which the Justice Department charged a defendant under that new statute that was created. Um, and there is no data in that report showing that rates of online sex trafficking or sales, even in consensual sex over the internet, have declined. Rather, the sex trade doesn't appear to have shrunken online since April 2018 when FOSTA became law, but fragmented across a number of platforms and apps, some of which moved overseas. And that's made it a lot more difficult, according to the GAO for the FBI to track down information in sex trafficking cases. Then there's also the component of the civil litigation that FOSTA opened up. Uh, so plaintiffs have begun to file lawsuits against platforms under FOSTA. So far, it's kind of a hodgepodge. There's not a, a you know, platform. Plaintiffs are moving forward with the litigation, but the district courts have made a, a range of different rulings and nothing has been decided in a binding way by an appellate court yet. But as long as that litigation continues, as long as there's not a clear answer to the question of what exactly is it that a platform can be held liable for under FOSTA, platforms are going to have an incentive to remain super cautious um, and again, and shut out content that would previously have been fined or excuse me, have been fine. So the the long and the short of it is that FOSTA doesn't appear to have been successful in prosecuting sex traffickers. It doesn't appear to have been successful in cutting down on illegal sex trafficking. And it appears to have harmed a lot of innocent people as collateral damage. So Ben, uh, there's been lots of attention to misinformation and disinformation online. And we know about Russian intervention in American elections, uh, there's also been uh, many examples of spreading lies about the 2020 election, as well as the efficacy of COVID uh, vaccinations. So uh, in your earlier answer, you mentioned a couple of options to deal with uh, these and other types of problems uh, online. 
Uh, you mentioned uh, tort liability actions. And then also you mentioned incentivizing companies against engaging in bad behavior. So how would either one of those things operate and how would they help deal with some of these issues? So that is a super big question. And I want to start by saying that if we knew the answer to that question, either individually or as a polity, uh, we would be in much better shape than we are. Uh, so here are a few thoughts in the direction of that. So um, one is that, you know, when you engage in disinformation, uh, and and the 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 companies uh, the platforms have done a dramatically better job over the last few years in addressing disinformation than they had over the previous few years. They've been more aggressive about it. They've uh, leaned in a bit to uh, um, to their perceived responsibilities, and I um, and I think that they're you know. Some are taking different positions than others uh, uh, on the specifics, but I think the major platforms have all acknowledged that they need to do more. What is the role of 230 in this is a very complicated question for the following reason. So first of all, uh, a lot of disinformation is not illegal. Right. So it wouldn't give rise. It wouldn't, it doesn't necessarily libel anybody. It doesn't give rise to uh, a cause of action that would be litigatable. So let's say you're saying that, you know, we're sympathetic to Russia because they're denazifying Ukraine, which is the Russian party line. I think most people would accept, uh, you know, Tucker Carlson accepted that that is disinformation. But it's not legally actionable. It's not. Uh, and so, you know, there's a real question as to whether 230 is doing a lot of work there in protecting the platforms from liability for it. If you think back to the 2016 election disinformation, uh, where you know the internet uh the internet research agency was creating all kinds of fake accounts right and flooding the world with disinformation it's not really clear how a different liability environment for uh facebook or twitter would have affected that in my opinion where you can imagine it making a real difference i think uh is uh, and there has been some legislation that has tried to tackle this where, uh, you know, the, the, you can make a credible argument, uh, that the platforms are kind of algorithmically promoting certain toxic content. Uh, this probably has, uh, again, you have to imagine that the specific piece of content is actionable somehow, but imagine a, you know, QAnon content that accuses individuals of, you know, drinking the vital fluid of babies, right? Um, uh, or sort of child uh, uh, molestation or, or abuse. Uh, those individuals, to the extent that the algorithms are, uh, that the platforms are promoting this material to certain people. And I think there's a 
you know, there has been a certain amount of that over over time. You know, if you express an interest in X, you get fed X squared, right? You get fed X squared to the nth. Um, uh, I think you could make a pretty good argument that to the extent that that the platforms are algorithmically promoting certain materials uh, that are uh, toxic and actionable, that you could decrease their incentive to do that by making them liable for uh, for not just for carrying it, but for actively promoting it. That said, this is incredibly difficult to define. Uh, so it's very easy to sit on a podcast and describe doing that. Writing a statute that would do that, that wouldn't have all kinds of other unintended consequences in exactly the way that Quinta is describing FOSTA as having had is exceptionally difficult. And I, I have thought about how you could define some of this stuff, and I've done a little bit of preliminary work on it. It's exceptionally difficult. So I think there's, you know, some work that the 230 regime could play in that space, but it's it's not obvious exactly what it would look like. So, Quinta, at the end of your paper, you mentioned several different types of reforms. You mentioned the possibility of carving out narrow exceptions to the legal liability shield, creating a civil rights or an extremist content standard, uh, setting up a malicious algorithm uh, law and using that to uh, enforce things, or using court orders to remove specific objectionable content. How would these reforms help us deal with harmful content? So I think uh, there's kind of a separate question of how how would these reforms actually affect harmful content online, as opposed to how do the proponents of these reforms and the uh, legislators who have introduced the bills that you're referring to, how do they say <laughs> that it would help us deal with harmful content? Um, I personally am more in favor of the the lighter touch um, approaches, which I, I think you can probably figure out why based on everything that Ben and I have said so far. Um, so one of the bills that you referenced um, is the PACT Act introduced by uh, Democratic Senator Brian Schatz and Republican Senator John Thune. Um, and that bill would, among other things, create a situation where platforms could lose 230 protection if they didn't remove particular content identified by a court order um, during a certain period of time. And so I think that one of the reasons why that approach, I, I think there's there's something to say for it, is because it is very specifically targeted at a very specific set of bad actors, websites that are informed that there is material that is potentially harmful and uh, or defamatory um, that should be taken down and refuse. Um, and again, that is a small portion of websites. It does not uh, describe, for example, Facebook, Twitter, major platforms that people are thinking of. It doesn't even describe most platforms. But those websites do exist and they are a problem. And so I think that a small tweak like that could potentially be helpful. 
Um, another thing that PACT does is it mandates uh, transparency requirements, uh, reports that platforms would put out. Um, there's another statute that I mentioned um, that has a similar name to PACT. It's called the Platform Accountability and Transparency Act, which is uh, uh, modeled in part on some really interesting work done by uh, Nathaniel Persily, who's a professor at Stanford Law School. And what that does is actually it doesn't um, so much tweak 230 as focus more on allowing independent researchers access to the inner workings of platforms on the theory that essentially you should see the data. You should be able to figure out what particularly the problems are here. You know, how is the algorithm working? Um, to use Ben's example, what kind of content are people responding to? What kind of content are people responding to that perhaps we want to limit um, before we start fiddling around too much? Um, and again, I think I, I find that pretty attractive because a lot of the other proposals that that you've mentioned, Daryl, I think could potentially fall into that problem of sort of twiddling the dial uh, represented by 230 without thinking too much about the potential unintended consequences. Something like, for example, uh, getting rid of 230 protections for uh, algorithmically promoted health misinformation, which is one proposal introduced by uh, Senators Amy Klobuchar and Ben Ray Lahan, um, sounds good, but then there are all these problems about, you know, how do we define health misinformation? Would platforms end up censoring things that people want to see? So it's a very difficult problem. So Ben... So, Ben, one of the challenges in the digital area is lack of data to test the impact of various reforms. Uh, most of the information is proprietary to specific companies, and some have suggested researchers should have greater access to data on how platforms curate content and then also how users engage with it. Is this something we should consider? Would that help us deal with uh, thinking about how to move forward with legislation? Uh, so I am not particularly expert in this space, but uh, the short answer is yes, uh, researchers should have more access. And by the way, there is one potential researcher who already has access to the extent that it wants it, which is Congress, uh, which could uh, you know, demand uh, um, uh, by either subpoena or by passing statutes uh, the disclosure or access, its own access, uh, let alone researchers' access and organize studies of its own. And I, I think, you know, uh, there is a excellent case for figuring out in as deep a way as we can what's going on here. Uh, it's actually hard to make policy without understanding the way the companies are really making decisions. And uh, we should create an environment in which uh, both the general public and the media uh, and the legislators themselves, to the extent they are uh, educatable on the subject, actually have access to the material they need to understand what's happening. So I have one last question for each of you. Now, I know that each of you has mainly focused on the United States, but of course, the topics that we're addressing uh, transcend America and every country is having to uh, think about content moderation and how to deal with things that are happening online. So I'm just curious, how are other countries handling this? 
Are there any good models out there of uh, countries that you think are doing a particularly a good uh, job? Are there lessons from abroad for the United States? And Quinta, why don't we start with you? It's a really important question because, as as you note, you know that this is not something that is necessarily bounded by national borders, um, and we have seen in the past how internet regulation in one country very easily spills over into another country. So, I think uh, most American uh, technologists and scholars are looking very closely right now at what's happening in Europe, uh, where they're considering what's called the Digital Services Act. Um, which would implement kind of a, a tiered system of responsibility for platforms based on different sizes, um, which is a, an idea that's been tossed around a little bit in the U.S., but is uh, far more advanced in terms of where it is in the legislative process in Europe. I think that there's there's some really interesting stuff in the DSA. There's also some stuff that I know uh, scholars and technologists have voiced some concerns over that it, it might uh, push platforms to moderate too aggressively along the lines that I'm discussing. Um, but I think what the, the broader point that your question gets to and that I do think is, is really important is just keeping in mind that the U.S. is not the only actor here. And uh, if and when Europe moves forward with the DSA, that is going to have huge effects on U.S.-based platforms. So we've, we've focused here on policy in the United States, but in many ways, the U.S. is kind of lagging behind Europe's curve when it comes to thinking about tech regulation. So, Ben, uh, same question for you. Any models abroad that you particularly like? Uh, no, is the short answer. Uh, so I think the European Union, uh, it, which is often cited as a very good model for the United States because of its aggressive approach to privacy regulation, is actually a lousy model as evidenced by the fact that there are no substantial tech platforms in Europe, uh, it's not an environment that has facilitated a great deal of innovation uh, in this space, uh, and it, I, I actually think it's a it's an unfortunate model for us to find as attractive as a lot of Americans seem to find it. Um, one of the problems in the 230 space, in particular, is that because uh, the companies are so heavily conditioned by 230 in their operating environments in the United States that spills over to a lot of their conduct elsewhere. Um, and so, uh, th while there are places that don't have, uh, the certainly uh, authoritarian places, but also, uh, non authoritarian regimes that have different rules, um, the, com the fundamental architecture of these platforms is built around a combination of EU compliance and U.S. compliance. And I think until a major uh, uh, regulatory environment actually tries something quite different from those two, uh, either on the liability space or on the direct regulation space, uh, those will be what are the you know, guide the fundamental architecture of the platforms. And so, I, you know, the look for models uh, is, um, you know, the, the Facebook is not going to re-architect the entire thing in response to Canada or Australia. It is, it will just affect what's available in, in Australia if they do something big and different. 
so it's actually hard to use those regimes as as models uh, for the United States or for Europe. I I think the the big economies and for this purpose, Europe is really one uh, economy uh, are are kind of serendipitous, honestly. Well, this is a fascinating topic that deserves greater attention. So I want to thank uh, both Quinta and Ben for sharing their thoughts with us today. At Brookings, we write regularly about social media and digital technology. You can find more information on our Brookings Tech Tank blog uh, located at brookings.edu. And if you're interested, you can also find uh, Quinta's paper there, which I highly uh, recommend. It's a a great history and contemporary application of uh, some of the issues that arise in this area. So thank you very much for tuning in. Thank you for listening to Tech Tank, a series of roundtable discussions and interviews with technology experts and policymakers. For more conversations like this, subscribe to the podcast and sign up to receive the Tech Tank newsletter for more research and analysis from the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings. Brookings.